We've been doing this series on the Bible, trying to understand the whole Bible, how it flows together so we can make more sense out of the small parts of it that we kind of read from time to time. And we're calling in this series God's Grand Story, the story of the Bible. Of course, you have the Old Testament, then you have the New Testament. Now, we've divided the Old Testament up into six parts. Six parts of the Old Testament are, first of all, you have beginnings, book of Genesis, beginnings, and it goes to wilderness wanderings. Under Moses, Israelites wander the wilderness. And then third part is the promised land. Joshua leads the Israelites into the promised land. You have the book of Joshua, the book of Judges. Then you have a united kingdom. Israel has their first king, King Saul. Then after King Saul's King David. After King David's King Solomon. So that's the first four parts. We have beginnings, wilderness wanderings, promised land, united kingdom. Following United Kingdom, we have the fifth part, five out of six part, and that is a divided kingdom, where that United Kingdom becomes split, and we began to look at that last week. So we saw last week that Solomon, who we studied him, had a divided heart, and this King Solomon, who had a divided heart, divided loyalties between God and all the idols of his wives, he actually set the stage of it for a divided kingdom. For ten tribes in the north will be referred to as Israel, and then one tribe in the south will be referred to as Judah, the twelfth tribe being the Levites who are spread throughout. But there's a division uh, in Israel. So if you're going to understand your Bible when you're reading the book of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, it won't make any sense to you unless you understand there's been a divided kingdom. When it refers to Israel in those books, it's talking about those northern tribes that have separated from the southern tribe of Judah, and then Benjamin, too, eventually joins them. And so we're going to continue today to look at what happened for this division to occur, because this united kingdom becomes a divided kingdom, and it is a mess. And so how did this mess start? What we saw last week as Solomon had a son by the name of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam is heir to the throne. Now, what do we know about Rehoboam? Well, we saw one real important verse that tells us a lot about him. 2 Chronicles 12, verse 14. Here's what it says. Referring to Rehoboam, it says, He did evil because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. So he does evil because of something he chose not to do. He did not set his heart to seek the Lord. He did not make a resolute decision to spend time with the Lord, worshiping the Lord, praying to the Lord, listening to the Lord, primarily through his word. And because of that, when it it comes time for him to make a major decision, he's just not ready for it. And I just want to interject here uh, just a word to the young people here with us this morning. If you're a teenager, 20-something, I'll even call you young if you're (laughs) 30-something. It's you have the opportunity as a young person, opportunity and a privilege to give God the gift of your youth. And you will not be able to do that 
you don't set your heart to seek the Lord. Well, Rehoboam didn't do that. And so now he has a major decision, and he's not ready for it. What was that major decision? Well, in 2 Chronicles chapter 10, King Solomon has just died. And his son, Rehoboam, is ready to assume Israel's throne. And all the people have gathered around for a coronation. And Rehoboam, if you remember, he takes the counsel of his, the younger men who he grew up with over the counsel of the wise men, older wise men. Because the people came and asked him for one simple request. Would you go easier on us than your father did, your father Solomon? Now, the older wise men said, you should go easier on them. The younger men said, no, be even harder on them than your father was. Show them, you know, who's boss. Well, that's what Rehoboam does. He tells them that. And the result of that is a division. These ten tribes say, we're not going to follow you, Rehoboam. These ten tribes of the north. And there is a split. But the ten tribes... Choose another man to be king, not Rehoboam. They choose another man by the name of Jeroboam to be their king. So now we need to back up a second, and it's important that we understand this if we're going to understand a lot of what happens in a good part of the Bible. What do we know about Jeroboam? Well, King Solomon already saw in Jeroboam, when Jeroboam was a young man, that he had this tremendous gifts and abilities. And so Solomon chooses Jeroboam to be over all of his forced labor that was building all these buildings beyond just the temple. Now remember that God had commanded Solomon to build the temple after David passed away, that Solomon would be the one who builds the temple in Jerusalem. But Solomon went way beyond building the temple, and he built many glorious buildings. And you've got to remember that Some of the stones in those buildings we know now were 40 feet long, and there was no machinery. So it took a gigantic labor force to build these buildings, and it became a forced labor force under Solomon. So Solomon forced a lot of the Israelites into servitude, and they hated it. And Jeroboam is placed by Solomon to be over it all. To be the one over the forced labor to build all these buildings. The temple and beyond. Let's pick it up. 1 Kings eleven twenty eight. Now the man Jeroboam was a valiant warrior. And when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he appointed him over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. Now, He must have also been fairly humane to the people because they later want him to be their king. The very ones who pulled away from Rehoboam because he's going to be too harsh, turn around and choose Jeroboam to be their king. So he he must have been humane to them. So we know that about him. There's something else we know about Jeroboam that's real important. Let's pick it up in 1 Kings chapter 11, starting in verse 29. See what happens. And it came about at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him on the road. 
Now Ahijah had clothed himself with a new cloak, and both of them were alone in the field. Then Ahijah took hold of his new cloak, which was on him, and tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give you ten tribes. But he will have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel. Because they have forsaken me and have worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the sons of Ammon. And they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and observing my statutes and my ordinances as my father, as his father David did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I'll make him a ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose, who observed my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom from his son's hand and give it to you, even ten tribes. But to his son I'll give one tribe, that my servant David may have a lamp always before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen for myself to put my name. And I'll take you, he's talking to Jeroboam, and I'll take you, and you shall reign over whatever you desire, and you shall be king over Israel. Then it will be that if, important word here, if, if you listen to all that I command you, and walk in my ways, and do what is right in my sight, by observing my statutes and my commandments, as my servant David did, then I'll be with you, and build you an enduring house as I built for David, and I'll give Israel to you. Thus I'll afflict, afflict the descendants of David for this, but not always. So I want you to imagine the scene. So Jeroboam is on his way, probably between one construction site and another construction site. And on his way, he runs into a prophet, a known prophet, Ahijah. The prophet approaches him, takes off a new cloak, and tears it into 12 pieces, and gives 10 pieces to Jeroboam, and says, you're going to be the next king of Israel. Now, we don't know if Jeroboam shared this prophetic word with other people, about what had happened to him. We don't know if he somehow tried to take certain action on his own to help it come to pass. But we do know that Solomon became suspicious of him. Solomon became suspicious maybe that Jeroboam was going to try to take his throne. Why do we know that? 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 40. Solomon sought therefore to put Jeroboam to death. But Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt, to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. So Jeroboam realizes, finds out Solomon's trying to kill him, and he takes off to Egypt and is in hiding there. Well, shortly after that, Solomon dies. Rehoboam is next in line to be king. And now we get to chapter 12. So Rehoboam sent to Shechem, for all of Israel to come to Shechem to make him king. So now the invitation has gone out for the big coronation. Well, the people come to Shechem, not with the intention of rebelling against Rehoboam. They want to make him king. They come expecting a, a glorious coronation. They have one simple request. Would you go easier on us than your father did? 1 Kings 12.2, Now it came about when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, 
that he was living in Egypt, for he was yet in Egypt where he had fled from the presence of Solomon. So Jeroboam, back in Egypt, hears that Solomon's passed away and there's a coronation for Rehoboam. And Jeroboam goes with the intention of being part of the crowd, you know, bringing Rehoboam on as king. Verse 3. Then they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Now, when they make that request for Rehoboam to go easier on them, Jeroboam is in that crowd. He's in that crowd. Now, again, so Rehoboam takes advice of the younger men, not the older wise men, and says, No, I'm going to be harder on you than my father. And they said, Then we don't want you to be our king. And they want Jeroboam to be their king. Let's read this. 1 Kings 12, verse 15. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of events from the Lord. So now we also see the sovereignty of God involved. That he might establish his word, which the Lord spoke through Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. And we get to verse 20. When all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over Israel. So now they realize he's here. The word gets out, he's here. We don't want Rehoboam to be our king. We want Jeroboam to be our king. So Jeroboam now is the king of the northern tribes called Israel. The southern tribe now in the book of First and Second Kings, the First and Second Chronicles, will be called Judah. One of those ten tribes, Benjamin, will join Judah after this shortly. But now we have a divided kingdom. And you will not make sense out of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles if you don't understand this happened. And Jeroboam is now the king of the northern tribes, but is called Israel. Southern tribes will be called Judah. There will be a king of Israel and a king of Judah as you read through those books. So what does Jeroboam do? First Kings chapter 12, verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now listen to this. This is what he's thinking. Now the kingdom will return to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So now Jeroboam thinks, I've got a problem here. See, according to the law, the Old Testament law, the Israelites are supposed to offer sacrifices back in Jerusalem. So if they go back to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices, they go back for the feast of Passover and Pentecost and Feast of Trumpets. If they go back for these feasts that they are supposed to go back to Jerusalem for, then they're going to realize that they're brothers with, their, with the tribe of Judah. And they may even fall in love with Jerusalem and they may decide they don't want me to be their king anymore. They want Rehoboam to be their king, and they may come and kill me. So that's what he's thinking. He's thinking that we've got a problem here. If they go back to Jerusalem, they're going back to a capital now of another country, Judah, not my country, Israel. So Jeroboam reasons that he is in political danger. Worshiping at the temple they could actually decide that we love it over here and we don't want Jeroboam to be our king. So Jeroboam, in his thinking, is thinking pragmatically now. How can I hold on to my political power? 
How can I stay being king? And he's going to make some decisions now, decisions pragmatically that he thinks will cause him to keep his kingdom, that these very choices are going to cause him to lose his kingdom. The same thing Solomon did. Solomon thought marrying all these foreign wives would give him alliances with other countries and cause him to keep his kingdom. In marrying all these foreign wives, he began to acquiesce to their, uh, to their idolatry and even participate in it. And by giving into it, he doesn't keep his kingdom, he loses his kingdom. So what does Jeroboam do? Here's what he does. 1 Kings 12, 28. So the king consulted and made two golden calves and said to them, it's too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he sent one to Bethel, and he put the other one in Dan. Now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan, And he made houses on high places and made priests from among all the people who were not of the sons of Levi. The Levites are the only legitimate priest. They probably saw what Jeroboam was doing, the idolatry, and said, we're not, no part of this. So so Jeroboam appoints other people from other tribes to be priests. Verse 32, and Jeroboam instituted a feast. Now he's going to put a feast on the same time as the other feast to compete so they don't have to go to Jerusalem. He instituted a feast on the eighth month, on the 15th day of the month, like the feast which is in Judah. And he went up to the altar. Thus he did in Bethel sacrifice unto the calves which he had made. And he stationed in Bethel the priest on the high places which he had made. Then he went up to the altar which he made in Bethel on the 15th day in the 8th month, even in the month of which he had devised in his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the sons of Israel, and he went up to the altar to burn incense. Now he's acting like the high priest. So Jeroboam sets up two golden calves, one in Dan for the northern part of the kingdom, make it kind of handy, convenient, one in Bethel for those tribes in the south, and again, God had designated only Levites are to serve as priests, but Jeroboam chooses priests from all the different tribes, and he makes, you know, he makes them the priest. And then he actually begins to function himself as the high priest. He establishes his own festivals corresponding to the festivals in Judah, so they don't go there. They stay. He's trying to hold on to political power. He's trying to hold on to his kingdom. It's amazing, he uses the same words. Remember when Aaron made the golden calf, Moses comes down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments? And Aaron makes the golden calf and says, Behold your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Jeroboam uses the same words with these golden calves. Now here's the question. Why did Jeroboam do this? He did it to hold on to political power. I mean, it was a pragmatic way, so he thought, to hold on to political power. So he compromised the word of God in order to hold on to political power. Now, how did he do it? 
That's why he did it. How did he do it? He did it by maintaining enough of the old religion to keep their consciences appeased. I mean, they still had sacrifices. And, they, you know, they probably said, well, it's the golden calves really aren't the gods. God is riding on the golden calves. They continued the feast. They still had feasts. They were just a little different. He's saying you don't have to avoid that. You avoid that long trip to Jerusalem. This is, this is much more convenient. It's interesting. Counterfeit religion is like that. It keeps just enough parts to make you think it's still valid. And after the sin of Jeroboam, when you read through the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, the next 18 kings of Israel, the northern tribes, it says, and they followed in the sin of Jeroboam. What is the sin of Jeroboam? Of course, it's idolatry. But what was even what was even underneath that was this compromising of the truth in order to hold on to political power. Today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. It's a Sunday where thousands of churches throughout America will speak clearly, simply and clearly, that all human life is sacred and must be valued and protected because all human life is made in the image of God. Yet, many churches will not participate in this Sunday, won't even mention it, because they're concerned about it being too controversial. Where is it controversial? Is it controversial in the Bible? No. It's controversial in politics. So many churches, for political reasons, have already compromised the truth. And many political leaders who claim to be born-again Christians, many of them even, also have compromised the truth in order to hold on to political power. In my lifetime, just in my lifetime, I have watched so many change their position on this important issue of the sanctity of human life, change their position from being, you know, right to life versus pro-choice or pro-abortion. Let me give you some examples. Do you know that in 1986, then-Governor Bill Clinton wrote a letter. He wrote a letter to the Arkansas Right to Life. And I quote what he wrote. He said, I am opposed to abortion and to government funding of abortion, end quote. But later he changed his position to a pro-choice, pro-abortion position. Now, why did he change his position? Like Jeroboam, he compromised the truth for political power. In 1984, Al Gore stated in a letter to a constituent, his deep, quote, his deep personal conviction that abortion is wrong, unquote. And he also voted to amend the Civil Rights Act to define the term person to include unborn children from the moment of conception. But later he changed his position to a pro-abortion position. Now, why did he change his position? 
Like Jeroboam, he compromised the truth for political power. In 1971, Senator Edward Kennedy wrote that he believed, and I quote, that human life, even at its earliest stages, has a certain right which must be recognized, the right to be born, the right to love, the right to grow old, end quote. But later he changed his position. Now, why did he change his position? Like Jeroboam, he compromised the truth for political power. Jesse Jackson, 1977, he wrote an open letter to Congress, and he said, and I quote, What happens to the mind of a person and the moral fabric of a nation that accepts the aborting of the life of a baby without a pang of conscience? What kind of person and what kind of society will we have in 20 years hence if life can be taken so casually? Failure to answer that question affirmatively may leave us with a hell right here on earth. End quote. But later he changed his position to a pro-abortion position. And why did he change? Like Jeroboam, he compromised the truth for political power. Now, what happens to all these politicians' convictions? And by the way, the list is so long of those who change their positions on this subject, subjects like abortion and other subjects. I'm just speaking about this on Safety of Life Sunday. They change their position because they think they have to in order to be electable. All they're doing is compromising for political power, compromising the truth. So what is the truth about the sanctity of human life? What is it? And if you don't hear it in church, where are you going to hear the truth? And if you've got churches that won't even speak the truth, when do we have such an issue? What is the truth about the sanctity of human life? Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female. He created them. Psalm 8, verse 4. What is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You and I have been made in the image of God and crowned with glory and majesty. He knit us in our mother's womb. I'm no accident. You're no accident. And we have great value and worth because we're in God's image. I want you to see just 15 seconds of a 4D sonogram and just want you to picture and just see this. Let's watch what we see here inside this mother. Does that look like a mass of tissue or a baby? See, whether I'm tall and beautiful or small and not so handsome, whether my body functions perfectly or is deformed severely, I am precious to God. And I'm crowned with glory and majesty. And as a result, I have inherent dignity, inherent worth, inherent value. And because of that truth, 
because that is the truth. There should be no place for abortion. There should be no place for euthanasia. There should be no place for racism. There should be no place for classism. The Bible is clear. All human life from conception to natural death is precious to God and must not be violated. And we at Grace Community Church will never, for political reasons, compromise this truth. You know, I want to say just a a word to those younger people here today as part of our church family. Because right now the statistics are half of millennials who claim to be followers of Christ refuse to take a stand on this issue. And so I just want to challenge our young people to have the faith and courage to stand for the truth. So that is why we support ministries in this church like the Metroplex Women's Clinic and Embrace Grace, Embrace Life, Foster and Adopt. Why? Because all those lives matter to God. Now, some of you might be thinking, but aren't there some valid reasons for terminating a pregnancy? And I just want you to think for just a moment before I close about this. Some of you remember the story of Susan Smith. It goes back to 1994, November 3rd. She confessed that she... took her two sons, a three-year-old and a 14-month-old by the name of Michael and Alexander, put them in her 1990 Mazda and rolled them into the lake, into John D. Lake and drowned them. And the reason was, and she actually told the reason was she wanted a relationship with a local man who's a wealthy man who wanted, wanted nothing to do with children. So she killed her children. And there was moral outrage after that, national moral outrage that a mother could do that. Jump from 1994 to 2001, Texas mom, Andrea Yates, killed her five children in the bathtub. Some of you remember that. They went seven years down to just a baby. She drowned them all, all five of them. Some of you that remember, remember there was national moral outrage that a mother killed her children. And more recently, 2008, Casey Anthony, six-week trial, some of you remember, two-year-old daughter named Kaylee Anthony was found dead. Those who watched the trial, I mean, the court didn't convict her, but I think just about everybody thought, yeah, she did it. That's not the point. Is that there, was a, there was national moral outrage that th- this happened again. And by the way, you can go and Google. There's lots of times this has happened, and every time it happens, there is national moral outrage. Now, maybe in each case it was different. Maybe the children were an inconvenience. They need to be killed. Maybe the uh, mother wanted a boyfriend. He didn't like her children, so maybe she should kill him. Maybe the children were just in the way. But here's, here's the question I want to ask. Is there anyone in this room that thinks it's okay for a mother to kill her, her child? And I think most of us say, of course not. I mean, who would actually defend? Who would get and defend national, nationwide? It's okay for a mother to kill her children. Those toddlers are in the way. I don't think anybody would try to defend that, anybody. But what if? What if they're not seven years old or three years old or two years old or one year old? What if they're just days old? Is it okay for a mother to kill her baby if the baby's only days old? Of course not. 
What if they're not, what if the baby's not days old? What if the baby is just one minute old? One minute old is okay for a mother just to roll over and kill him. No. What if the baby's one second old? When is it okay for a mother to kill her baby and there's no longer national moral outrage? What about one second before the baby's born? What about during the delivery, also called partial birth abortion? Is that okay? There's a whole lot of politicians that think it is. See, the question is, when would it be okay for a mother to kill her child? When when do you back it up and say, well, now it's okay? Yet there are politicians and pastors who have compromised the truth for political power, and now unborn babies are continuing to be killed in large numbers. Now, again, I rejoice that the Supreme Court made the decision they made. It was the right decision. Now it's gone to the states. Uh, The war is far from over. But I just want to challenge us to hold to the truth, to stand for the truth. And the truth is, you are a precious creation of God, made in his image, crowned with glory and majesty. And so is every other person from conception to natural death, whether they're severely handicapped or no matter what their ethnicity, every person is created in the image of God and therefore is, has value, inherent value, and therefore it is outrageously sinful to put that person to death. So my challenge as we close is simply this. As, as Christians who believe the truth, believe the Bible, we should embrace this truth. We should proclaim this truth. We should proclaim it passionately, confidently, relentlessly, without compromise, no matter how in, you know, unpolitically you know, correct or politically incorrect it ever becomes. Let's just stand for a moment. I, just, I want us to pray because I, about some things in this regard. Just close your eyes if you would. There are some of you that have been party to an abortion, whether as a mother or a father, and you need to know that Jesus forgives every sin. Every sin. Just turn to him right now. If you haven't confessed it to him, turn it. He will cleanse you completely. He'll take away your shame and guilt. He bore every sin on the cross, including that sin. So don't walk in any more shame and guilt. Give it to him. Walk out of here knowing you're forgiven. You're forgiven. Father, we thank you for how forgiving you are. And we pray, Lord, that we will all be able to realize that all of our sins are horrendous in your sight and you forgive every one of them through Jesus. So I pray, Lord, that nobody who's been a part of this, who's truly repentant today and turns to you, could walk in any more shame and guilt. Lord, also we pray for our ministries of Embrace Grace, Embrace Life, Metroplex Women's Clinic, Foster and Adopt. And we ask, would you put your hand on those, cause them to be powerful in bearing much fruit, and would you multiply them all across this state, this this land, and this world. And Lord, we close by praying for politicians and pastors who are compromising the word of God for political power. And we're asking, Lord, would you bring just the spirit of the fear of the Lord upon them? Lord, we pray they couldn't be easy with this. I pray, Lord, you disturb their sleep at night with conviction about what is right. And Lord, we pray that there would be these state houses right now that the the battle's gone into these states. We pray for men and women who are in these state houses, Lord, Congress and state senates, and that, Lord, that, they, that the ones who know you, Lord, would stand up for the truth. We pray for those who say they know you but have been compromising for conviction for the truth. 
And we ask you, Lord, that you would rid this land of this scourge and it would be a model for the nations of the world. We pray this in the name of Jesus.